0: In the second half of the sermon about the end times, Jesus employs seven parables to teach us principles for living in light of his coming as king and judge at the end of the tribulation. The fig tree parable taught us that God is in absolute control of history, has a definite unchanging plan for humanity, and that his word is eternal and infallible. The two men and two women, the thief and the night, the good and evil slave parables, taught us to be ready, ready to stand before our judge, to be alert for his coming, to be mindful of our behavior, to be faithful and wise and to perform those duties that God has entrusted to us. And the ten virgin parable taught us the importance of possessing the Holy Spirit. Now in the last two parables, the parable of the good and evil slaves and the parable of the ten virgins... Jesus focuses primarily on the generation of Jewish people living at the end of the tribulation when he returns. And he affirms for us that there are two types of people that he's going to find. He's going to find regenerate and he's going to find unregenerate. Redeemed and unredeemed, saved and unsaved. The regenerate Jews, like the good slave, will work to share God's word with others during the tribulation. And because they've done their work, Jesus says they'll be rewarded. They're like the prudent bridesmaids who had oil already for their lamps. You see, like those bridesmaids, these people, these Jews, will possess the Holy Spirit. And as such, God is going to welcome them into his kingdom, and they're going to be guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But there was another group, the unregenerate group of Jews, who are like the evil slaves. In the parable. Instead of doing the work given to them. They have acted selfishly. They have aligned themselves with those marked for God's judgment. And as such they themselves will be judged. They will not be rewarded when their master Jesus the Messiah returns. You see like the foolish bridesmaids who had no oil for their lamps. These unregenerate Jews will not possess the Holy Spirit. And as such they will be locked out of God's kingdom. They will be cast into hell and ultimately the lake of fire. Now Jesus continues focusing on that generation of Jewish people living at the end of the tribulation. And again, he focuses on the regenerate and unregenerated individuals in this next to final parable. Here in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, Jesus presents the parable of the hidden talent. The parable of the hidden talents. Whereas the ten virgins parable focused on being ready while we're waiting, this parable focuses on being ready while we're working. You see, believers, whether we're waiting for the rapture, or those believers that live through the tribulation, either way, we need to be waiting for His return. But we also need to be working while waiting for His return. It's essential to understand... That waiting for Jesus' coming is no excuse for us to be lazy. Paul had to deal with this very issue in 1st and 2 Thessalonians. Some of the Thessalonian believers had thought they missed the tribute or they had missed the rapture. Others thought they that the return was coming. They were living in the tribulation. But either way, whatever their thought process was, they had this crazy idea: well, since Jesus is coming and it could happen at any moment. I might as well just quit my job and just sit around and pontificate all day. There's an old saying. They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. They had no value to God because they were doing what God told them not to do. Yes, I'm coming. Yes, be prepared. But that doesn't mean you stop living. Just because Jesus is coming again doesn't mean you don't stop serving him. It doesn't mean we can just sit back and just, well, he's coming, so, so what? You know, whatever happens, happens, and I'll just sit here in the corner, or I'll travel to some and sit on some hill and pontificate all day. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 10. He says, We urge you, brethren, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your business and work with your hands. He follows up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, the problem hadn't gotten any better. He says, we hear that some among you are leading a lazy life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. You see, they found some business. You see, when you're not busy doing something, you will find something to be busy doing. And that's what happens. People who have nothing to do become busybodies. They're in everybody else's business because they got no business of their own. And Paul says, you better get to some business, your own business, and mind everybody else's business. And so, he says, we command you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ to work and eat your own bread. So while we're waiting for Jesus' return, we must be busy working for him. And as Jesus presents here in the Hidden Talent parable, he reveals to us what is in store for those who work for him and those who do not. Now, the hidden hidden talent parable begins with a charge in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 14 and 15. The charge, let's look at verse 14 and 15. Jesus says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Notice it is just like a man. He says that phrase "just like" hospera is a comparative term. He's comparing this man going on a journey to something. The problem is in the text it actually doesn't tell us what he's comparing it to. What are we to do? Are we just throw our hands up and say, "Well, we don't know." No. The answer lies in the previous parable. When we go back to the previous parable, Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to ten bridesmaids. So he's still comparing things to the kingdom of heaven. Here he compares the kingdom of heaven is just like a man about to go on a journey. Now, we've talked about the kingdom of heaven before, but let's just recap. The kingdom of heaven is synonymous with the kingdom of God, one and the same thing. But we noted before that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is his eternal rule, but it exists in three different spheres. First of all, there's the universal sphere, okay, the fact that God is the creator, therefore he is in control, he he has the final say and authority on all things. But then there is a spiritual aspect of God's kingdom, and that's where you and I are living today, as believers, we're part of the spiritual kingdom of God. But there's also yet a future sphere which will be a physical aspect to God's kingdom. And that will occur when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation to establish God's kingdom on earth. And then all those who are part of the spiritual kingdom will be welcomed into the physical kingdom. And so here he's comparing the kingdom of heaven and we're dealing with, again, the physical aspect, the establishment of the physical kingdom, the establishment of the physical kingdom will be just like a man about to go on his journey. Now, before going on his journey, the man called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Here, this man is a man of means. Okay, he's got servants, and he's got possessions. The word slaves, it's that classic word doulas, which is an interesting term because it refers to an individual who voluntarily or willingly gives up their rights to serve the will of another. Okay, So this is not somebody forced into slavery. This isn't somebody who you know was taken prisoner and forced to do something they didn't want to do. They, they, you know, That's not what we're dealing with. We're talking about people who as a profession to pay their bills, do whatever, sold themselves to work Typically, for a period of seven years, to pay off their debt, whatever it may have been, and once that period of time was over, they were free again. Uh, many times in the Roman culture, in which the type of this dual slavery, this bond servant system we're dealing with, uh, was unique, because often uh, while they were doing their indentured servitude, uh, they would go to school, they would be educated, uh, and often when their time of service was done their former master would set them up with a business. He would give them funds so that they could go out and get a fresh start on a new footing. And so that's the type of system that we're talking about here. Even in under God's law, back in Exodus chapter 21, he deals with the issue of the bondservant being something that was voluntary. In fact, he says in Exodus 21, if a servant says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I don't want to go free he can choose after the 7 years to stay and continue working if he so chooses but again the point we need to draw from this is that number 1 it's voluntary okay it's either entering into a voluntary service number 2 once you become a dulas a bond servant you're swearing to absolute obedience and unwavering loyalty Okay, So, recall back in the previous parable, the parable of the good and evil slaves. Who were the slaves in that parable? Who were the bondservants? Well, we know from Isaiah 41, verse 8 and 9, Yahweh says, You, Israel, my servant, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, you are my servant, I have chosen you, not rejected you. So we know in the parable here, when Jesus is talking about the slave or the bondservant, he's talking primarily, first and foremost, to the Jewish people particularly the Jewish people living at the end of the tribulation when Christ returns to establish the kingdom. He, this man entrusts his possessions to his slaves. Now the word possessions here, parko, can be defined as goods, property, or money. Now in the context, he's using the term in sense of money. He entrusted, he paradidimized them to something. He placed something into their care. And what was that? talents here the word talents is money now he gives these three servants money which implies their position in the household these were not just common bond servants these three gentlemen were stewards they were running the household they were running the master's businesses okay they had the authority to maintain a treasury so that they could care for the master's households and businesses, just like today we would have a power of attorney. That's the authority they had. And so by entrusting the money to these servants, the master expected them to use his assets to benefit his business and make a profit. So he caused these three particular slaves. To one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one. Now again, the word talents here, which is the word talentan, refers to a monetary measurement. A monetary measurement. One talent would equal 6,000 drachma. 6,000 drachma. So 6,000 drachma would be about $1,000 today. Okay. So three servants, three different amounts. Five talents, $5,000, which would, by the way... He could pay, for a hundred days, he could pay day laborers for a year. A hundred day laborers for a year would be paid with that money. To the second, he entrusted $2,000, 2000 To the third, he entrusted one talent or $1,000. Now, notice there's various talents given, which illustrates a great point for us to learn. And that is that God gives to his servants a wide range of responsibilities. We don't all, We are not all given the same amount of responsibility. Some have more, some have less, but we all have responsibility. And besides illustrating differing degrees of responsibility, we also see here a degree of spiritual maturity. On the one side of the scale, you have the servant given five talents, which would represent those who have spent significant time in the study of of God's word. While on the other side of the scale, you have those whose knowledge of scripture is rudimentary. They're just starting out. They're just beginning. Now, Each was given according to his own ability. Okay? The man knew the strengths and weaknesses of each of his servants. He gave them no more or no less than what they could handle. And regardless of the amount they were given, each servant was responsible to do everything he could do with what he had been given. Now, there's an excellent example in the scriptures of these three servants. And that is the 12 disciples. Or later the 12 apostles. You'll recall the 12 were divided into three groups of four. The first group, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were in the innermost circle. They were closest to Jesus. They had the greatest stewardship, the greatest responsibility. They represent the slave with the five talents. The next group, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas. They represent the servant with the two talents. And the final group which was James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Celad; Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, represent the servant with the one talent. They're not as close to Jesus as the first group, but they still have some degree of responsibility. God has also given to his people, the Jews, as his servants, a stewardship and responsibility. He has given them his light. And he has made them responsible to share the light of the gospel with the nations. Quoting Isaiah 42 and verse 6, Paul and Barnabas said, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. See, Paul and Barnabas understood that as Jewish people, they had a responsibility given to them by God to share the light of the gospel with all. And my friends, that task will not change during the tribulation. Having given the charge to his servants, the man went on his journey. And the journey here represents Jesus' time in heaven between the first and second comings. Before returning to heaven, Jesus charged his disciples. He charged Peter, James, John, and the rest, and it's applicable to you and I today. He charged us in Matthew 28 19 and 20, saying, This go, therefore, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples of who? All nations. Take the light of the gospel to all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, my friends, we are currently responsible for sharing the gospel, we are currently responsible for making disciples. We are currently responsible for teaching said disciples the scriptures. And so each and every one of us needs to consider what am I, what are you, each of us has to ask, you don't ask for your neighbor, I don't ask for you, you ask for you and I'll ask for me. What are we doing with that charge? Ask yourself, am I sharing the gospel? Ask yourself, am I making disciples? Ask yourself, am I teaching the scriptures? That's our charge. The hidden talent parable continues with the commerce in verses 16 to 18. The commerce. Let's look at verse 16. Immediately, the one who received five talents went and traded with them, gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Immediately. That word immediately, eutheos. Implies without delay, without hesitation. The first servant wasted no time in using said funds, his master's funds, and traded them. Now the word trade here, agerzomai, is a commerce term. It's the idea of investing. He took the five talents, he took the $5,000, and he invested it and gained $5,000 more Doubled his money. His investment paid off. He used what his master had given him. Continuing the parable, Jesus says, in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents went and did the same. Now notice that phrase, in the same manner. The second slave, the second servant, did the exact same thing the first servant did. These two servants aspired to accomplish much for their master with his money while he was gone. So he took his two Invested it, and he doubled. He made two more. He had two, now he's got four. He maximized his opportunity. He doubled his investment. Now, they did not produce equal amounts, but they each earned an equal profit percentage. Now, again, we're focusing on the Jewish people in the tribulation. The first two servants represent the Jewish people who are regenerated. They've received the gospel. They've had the light of the gospel. They're spreading it far and wide. In fact, John, John says in Revelation 14 and verse 4 that during the tribulation there will be 144,000 Jewish witnesses declaring the gospel who have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the land. First fruits, that means that 144,000 is just the beginning of Jewish people who are going to be redeemed during the tribulation period. Now, you might assume the third slave or the third servant is going to do the same. You're probably shocked when you read the parable and Jesus says, But, in contrast to the first two servants, this cat received one talent, went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. You see, instead of investing the money, he hid the money. Now, does that seem odd to you and I today? Yes. Okay. I don't know too many people today who take their money and go and dig a hole in their backyard and bury it. Okay. But understand the culture and customs of ancient Israel. Israel's personal banking system was non existent prior to the exile. At that time, if you had any kind of money or valuables, you buried them in the ground. Okay? That's how you protected them. After the exile, with the beginning of the Roman Empire, Jews began adopting the practice of depositing their wealth or valuables into the banks. By the way, the banks were usually located at the temples. So wherever there was a temple, you know there would be a bank. Okay, So uh, temple, you have the first temple, savings and loans there in Jerusalem. And that is why when Jesus comes to the temple, what did he find there? Money changers, the bankers, okay? Because they did what all everybody else was doing. They set the banks up in the in the temples. So each servant was given money by the master to handle for him. There's an expectation from the master that they will use the money prudently to maximize its full potential. Only two were prudent. One was foolish. Instead of investing the money, he buried it. The third slave represents the Jewish people living in the tribulation. But unlike the first two are, who are regenerated, this cat is unregenerated. He is a servant, yes, he is Jewish, but he hid the master's money. He didn't use it. He didn't invest it. He did nothing with it. He buried it. He hid it away and forgot all about it until the master returned. And you know who's a great example of that third slave? Judas Iscariot. He was part of the third group of disciples. He didn't have as many responsibilities as the first two groups, but nonetheless he had some responsibility. He, for three years he called Jesus his lord and his master but he never took advantage of the opportunity. Instead, like the third servant here, he took what Jesus gave him, he squandered it away by not using it. Now, let me ask you this. How many believers today, how many of us today are like this third slave? Maybe you've professed to believe the gospel. You've professed Jesus to be your Lord and Master. But you're doing nothing with the charge you have been given. You're not sharing the gospel. You're not making disciples. You're not teaching the scriptures to those disciples that you're making. In other words, you've been given the light, but you're doing nothing with the light of Jesus. You're simply squandering it away. You've buried it in the ground. Well, let's see what happens. The hidden talent parable continues with the calculation. Now, for the calculation here, we're going to jump around. So we're going to look at verses 19 to 20, then jump to verse 22, and then we'll jump to verses 24 to 25. So let's pick up with the calculation, verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who received five talents came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me, See, I have gained five more talents. Also, let's jump down to verse 22. Also, the one who had received the two talents came and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. Jump to verse 24. The one who had received the one talent came and said, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping what you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See that you have what is yours. So, after a long time, that's reminiscent of similar phrases we've seen in these parables. Remember, in the good and evil slaves parable, Matthew 24, 48 says that they said in their heart, My master's not coming for a long time. In the ten, with the ten bridesmaids in Matthew 25, 5, it tells us that the groom was delaying. And so in each of the parables here, this underscores a time lapse between Jesus' first and second coming. But when the master comes, he comes to settle accounts with them. The word settled here, sonato, is a financial term meaning to reconcile an account or to calculate profit and loss. He came to calculate their profit and loss. What did you do with my money? Did you lose money? Did you make me money? And like the master, when Jesus returns, he's going to reconcile all of his servants' accounts. He's going to calculate our profits and our losses. So he begins with the first two servants. The first servant says, hey, you gave me five, I made five more. The second slave says, master, you entrusted two to me, I made two more. They did exactly what the master expected their attitude of doing exactly what he commanded them is the same attitude Jesus expects of all his servants. In Luke chapter 17, verse 9 and 10, Jesus says, The servant did the things which were commanded. So you too, when you do all that thing, those things which are commanded you, saying, Hey, we're unworthy servants. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Friends, as servants of Jesus Christ, we are required to do all that he commanded us. Nothing more. Nothing less. Next he comes to the third servant's account. And the third servant reports, Master, I was afraid, so I went away and hid your talent. I hid the money in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Hey, I kept it safe. Now, you might consider that to be a good thing. Oh, he's very altruistic. My friends, you need to look beneath the surface here. What is his reasoning? he goes on and says i was afraid phobia i had anxiety i was fearful of your wrath that's a little odd isn't it first two were i was i knew you to be a hard man you're a severe man you're harsh okay and you reap where you didn't sow you gather where you haven't scattered seed In other words, you're not only harsh, but you're demanding, master. You expect returns where you made no investments. Listen, this cat did not know his master at all. Instead, he despised the master. And as such, acted out of selfish fear. And friends, when Jesus returns, he is going to find many who never responded to the gospel and rendered no faithful, obedient service to him. And as Jesus judges them for their lack of faith and obedience like this slave, they're going to hurl false accusations against him. Instead of judging themselves as sinners and repenting, they attempted to justify themselves by judging Jesus. And my friends, all will become evident that their self-justification and their false accusations are going to be their own undoing. But how many professing believers today do exactly the same thing? They make excuses, and I hope this is none of you, but perhaps it is, maybe you're making excuses for why you're doing nothing with the charge that God has given you, that Jesus has given you. Maybe you've even gone so far as you've impugned God's character. Oh, Lord, you're asking too much of me. Let me ask you, my friends, this. How can someone who gave their life for you, who rescued you and redeemed you and ransomed you out of the lake of fire, how can that person ask too much of us? How can someone who's given everything ever be accused of demanding too much? Well, the parable concludes with the compensation. The compensation. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to look at verse 21, 23, and then twenty four to third. So let's look at the compensation. We'll pick up at verse twenty-one. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse twenty-three. Now he's talking to the second servant. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now I'll get to verse twenty-four. But his master answered and said to him, this is the third slave, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him, and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he who will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away." Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. O to be the first two servants. Well done. You used my money properly and satisfactorily. Though the amounts of money each made were different, they were not judged by the amount. Rather, they were judged for how they used it. They used the master's money in the best interest of their master. And besides applauding them, he calls them good and faithful. Good, agathos, you're valuable, you're profitable. You're faithful, you're pistos, you're, you've proved your trustworthiness. And because they invested his money properly, they proved themselves profitable and trustworthy. The master goes on to say, you were faithful with a few things, I'm going to put you in charge of many things. You see, he compensates them, he rewards them with greater responsibility. And when Jesus returns, he's going to judge the righteous based on their faithfulness and obedience to him. And he's going to reward them with greater responsibility in his kingdom and throughout eternity. Then he says to the two, enter into the joy of your master. Now joy here, kara, is pleasure, delight, happiness. And he is inviting his servants here to participate in his happiness. What is Jesus' happiness? It's entrance into his kingdom. So it's an invitation: come participate in my happiness. Come participate in my kingdom. But then he comes to the third slave: you wicked, lazy slave. Paneras, wicked, you're worthless. You're lazy, you're achneras, you're have no ambition. You didn't take any risk. You didn't invest my money. You proved yourself worthless. And then he says, turns his own words against him. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. In essence, listen, you think I'm so harsh, you think I'm so demanding, then why didn't you do something with what I gave you? If I can demand a return on something that, I, that does not belong to me, then don't you think I would demand a return from you? He goes on and says, you should have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Now, in the Roman Empire, first century A.D., the banking system operated much like today, savings, loans, and so forth. At the time of this parable, the loan rate was 12%. So if you took a loan, the rate of interest was 12% back. But interest on earned deposits, if you deposited the money, the interest earned was about 6%. So he's saying, listen, at the very least, if you didn't want to invest it, fine, but at least put it in the bank where it could have made 6% interest. He says, I'd have been happy with a slight return than no return." Because he did nothing with the master's money, the master says, take away the one talent from him, give it to the one who has ten. So his money's taken and given to the first servant. And listen, before we think, well, wait a minute, this isn't fair. How how could Jesus do that? Here's the principle. Everyone who has, more shall be given. So they'll have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. In other words, if you are faithful... You're going to be given more responsibility. You've taken what was put in your care. You've proved yourself trustworthy. You're going to be compensated. But at the same time, if you're unfaithful with your stewardship, the only thing you're going to be compensated with is loss and judgment. And then he says, throw out the worthless slave into outer darkness. Now the word worthless here, a little different. This is a kiosk, meaning he's just totally unprofitable. Take this unprofitable slave out of my presence. Cast him into outer darkness. This is a metaphor for the lake of fire. Now we established in previous studies. When Jesus returns at the end of tribulation. 30 days later is when he's judging. The Jewish people. By the way somebody asked me. "Well, When does he judge the Gentiles? 15 days later. If You go back to that passage in Daniel 12. Where we have the establishment of the 1290 days. Then you come to a 1300 and something. Which is basically 45 days. So 30 days after Jesus return. He judges the Jewish people. 45 days after his return, or 15 days after he judges them, he's going to judge the Gentiles. Man, that's grace, isn't it? All right? Hey, listen, he gave the Jewish people 30 days to get their stuff together, but he gives the Gentiles an additional 15 days. It amazes me that there's going to still be people at the end of 30 days and the 45 days who still won't have their stuff together. But nonetheless, that's people. Jesus has given them the gospel... They've seen him for 30 days and they're so wicked, lazy, and worthless that they do nothing with it but treat it with contempt. So they're cast in the lake of fire. I want to take a moment and talk about the lake of fire. It's described here as a place of outer darkness. In other words, it's the place farthest from light. Now in 1 John 1, 5, it says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That means that the lake of fire is going to be so far from God that it will be the farthest point from god and that's where these unregenerate individuals will be placed you know the worst part of the lake of fire isn't the fire and it's not the darkness and it's not the torment. it's the separation from god for all eternity well how's that fair listen you've had you had x amount of years to get your stuff together he's given you time Jesus adds, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing demonstrates that this torment will be inconsolable. And by the way, the torment in the lake of fire is going to be proportionate to the degree of guilt. Okay? So if he had given them five and they didn't do anything with the five, you know, that guy would have been tormented to that degree. This guy, he's only got one, so he's only being tormented to that degree. Listen, regardless of the degree of torment, torment, torment. I don't want any of it. Somebody said, Pastor, do you think the lake of fire presently exists? Yes. We'll see next week in verse 41. Jesus says, the eternal fire, the lake of fire, has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That word, has been prepared, is in the perfect tense. That means it happened in the past and it presently is existent. So when Jesus spoke those words, the lake of fire was existing. It's still existing today and it's awaiting its occupants. Some have gone so, way to, so far to say that the lake of fire is in God himself. I think that's bogus. First of all, it's out of darkness. It's got to be the farthest point from God. Uh, but here's another reason why. Listen, if God is going to cast you there so that you're eternally separated from you or from him, why would he have the lake of fire within himself so that you'd be within him? That don't, that's just that's bonkers. That's just nuts. That's bad theology. Where is the lake of fire? Well, I can tell you this. It's not on earth. Listen, hell is in earth. Okay, the scripture is clear that hell is within the earth. But hell is going to be cast into the lake of fire. We don't know where it's located, but we know this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Daniel says, I kept looking and I saw the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days sat on his throne. And he sat, and his throne was ablaze. And it on its wheels. So again, we're talking about that cloud car again that we saw in Ezekiel thirty-four. But the throne hovered. Listen over a river of fire. Word "river" here can be translated as what? Lake. It's a body of water, typically. But in this case, it's not a body of water. It's a body of what? Fire. We know this. That typically in the Bible, when we see the throne of God, it's in heaven or it's in New Jerusalem. But there's one time when the throne will be at the lake of fire. And that is on the day of the great white throne. When he judges and casts every evildoer into eternal torment. Friends, just like Israel, Jesus has entrusted to you and me light. We are the lights of the world. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Our light is to proclaim the gospel with our lips and with our lives. The charge of Matthew 28, 19 to 20 still stands. We're still to be making disciples. And Jesus has entrusted us with the means to accomplish that task. He's given us his word. He's given us the Holy Spirit. And so I would challenge you to ask yourselves this. Am I using... Or am I squandering what God has given me? Am I shining forth as a light in a world of darkness? Am I making disciples? Or not? My friends, if we are not... Listen, I I pray you're a genuine believer, but my friend, if you're a genuine believer and not doing these things, I'll tell you this. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and praise God, it's His seat and it's not the great white throne But at the judgment seat of Christ, He's going to take everything we've done and He's going to weigh it going to put it through the fire of judgment and if you have squandered what he's given you it's going to be burned up and you're going to have nothing no reward no blessing additionally god has given us spiritual gifts so that we can minister to one another romans 12 says for as such as we are many members in one body all the members do not have the same function so we who are many are one body in christ and individually members of Another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Listen, if you're a child of God, you're part of the body of Christ. You're part of that universal church. And he describes it as a body. You know, some of you are fingers, some of you are hands, some of you are arms, some of you are feet, some of you are legs. You know, we're all different parts. And when one part of the body is doing something, another part is doing something else. My feet don't do what my hands do, my hands don't do what my feet do. And I shouldn't expect my feet to do what my hands do and vice versa. You see, my friends, in this body of believers here, we don't all function the same way. But we all have a function. Each, every person here doesn't have the same service. We all serve the same God, but our service is different. And God has equipped each and every one of you with a different gift or gifts. that best fit the specific service that he has equipped you and called you for. You know, if we expect or demand others to serve the same way we serve, we're not only going against the scripture, but we're going to harm the church, okay? You know, everybody can't be a hand, everybody can't be a foot, some people have to be elbows, some people have to be knees. Furthermore, if we're not using our spiritual gifts... Listen, when we stand at Jesus, before Jesus, he's going to censure us. We're not going to hear, well done. Praise God, he's not going to cast us into outer darkness. Well, my friends, definitely, I, I pray that you, as much as me, wants to hear my master, my Lord, say to me when I see his face, well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, none of us are going to stand before Jesus and argue with him. Oh, Lord, now wait a minute, you gave me too much. Well, Lord, you didn't give me enough. That's no, it's not going to wash. Because he's given us, our king has given us, each of us, exactly what we can handle. He doesn't give you any more. He doesn't give you any less. He's given you the Holy Spirit who provides us with his strength and his wisdom and his power so that we can obey the charge to share the gospel, make disciples, and teach them the scriptures. So, friends, let's examine ourselves. And let's make sure that we get our business right today. Someday we're going to give an account. And I pray that when each and every one of us stands to give an account, when when our profit and loss is put on the the table, we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Father God, we come before you, Lord, giving you thanks and praise for the word that you have given us. Lord, we're never going to be able to stand before you and say, well, we didn't know because you've revealed it in your word you've told us what you expect you've given us a charge and father there's going to come a day of compensation i pray lord while it is still day while we still have opportunity that we will take up the charge you've given us to go and share the gospel make disciples and teach them we're not all equipped with the same gifts we're not all equipped the same way lord but you've equipped all of us nonetheless to do our service And so I pray, Father God, that as your spirit dwells within us, he'll motivate us and move us to that end. Father, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us when we don't share the gospel. Forgive us when we're not being what we should be. Forgive us, Lord, for not making disciples. Forgive us for not taking them under our wings and teaching them. And Father, move us again to take up the charge. And to invest what you have given us. Whether you've given us five or two or one. Lord find us profitable. Find us Lord using what you've given us. In a satisfactory way. So that you can be glorified and praised. Father I pray that we will go forth. And that as we go forth Father we will go forth busy. Not busy buddies but busy bees working for the kingdom. And your servants, as your servants, we pray and ask these things according to the name of our Savior. Amen.